Welcome, you're listening to the Social Care Podcast with Audrey and David, aka Baggy. Welcome to our podcast. We hope to give insight into what it means to be a social care worker and chat with people doing interesting things in the social care world. Today's guest, Sinead Quinn, has worked in a variety of social care roles since 2006. For the last 10 years, she's worked with Sunless Domestic Violence Charity. She worked as a women's support worker until recently when she took up the newly created role of training and programs officer. The main aim of this role is to increase awareness of domestic violence. So, Baggy, we don't often think of domestic violence services as social care. But in this particular service, all of the support workers are social care workers. What did you think of the interview? As we were chatting, it's amazing, like all the layers that are involved in different organizations. I really like the way Sinead came across as being so positive. Uh, I, I, I like the way a lot of the people that we've interviewed so far have been nothing but positive, really, about the service. And she was no exception. She's a wealth of information about domestic violence services. And do you know what's interesting to me? Wherever a social care worker ends up working, whether it's in disability services, uh, homeless services, addiction services, or domestic violence services, there's actually a whole subset of knowledge that you need to know that you may not get in college. So it's different things like different systems and processes and policies around it. Even the legislation for a service like this is slightly different to a lot of the legislation for other services. Like you need to know about all of the orders that she explained about. The challenges seem quite similar though, don't they? Like the whole challenge around not taking the work home with you, trying to manage difficult service users, trying to manage difficult situations. There's probably more similarities than differences, but that whole piece about there being like a subset of knowledge um, is really interesting to me. What do you think? Well, I think if we wrote down the content of the interview we've had so far and you read them, as you say, a, a lot of what is being shared and spoken about would transfer between all the different organizations that we um, have been discussing. It's like you go to college, as you say, you learn the basics, you learn theories, you learn the practicalities for paperwork and law. But as we said as well, for all areas, the, the placement, going out in placement and learning as you're doing is a, a huge part of the learning. Yeah, um, it's really valuable. Well, as, as we've discussed as well, there's not a lot uh, taught. Well, in, in my remembrance of being in the course of the interpersonal skills with your team, how you can depend on them and let them know that they can depend on you and the whole lot of information around as we've kind of named it, the first side chats, the sharing of experience um, going back to things that happen on a day to day basis. I think we're going to adopt that term, aren't we, from Paul I, Flynn? Yeah, I think yeah. so. That's a I'm loving it. I'm loving yeah. it. And I, and I love that this is kind of becoming like the old fireside chats that people can listen into. But without further ado, we hope you enjoy this podcast. So Sinead, we're delighted to have you on the Social Care Podcast. Would you like to start by telling us a little bit about how you got into social care? 
Yeah, thanks Emil for having me. Um, I'm delighted to be here to chat to you both. So how did I get into social care? I was thinking about this during the week and I remember doing a community care group when I was in fifth year in secondary school. And the school I was going to kind of had, everyone had to do an extracurricular activity for the fifth year. And I chose community care. So we spent the year doing different fundraisers, chatting to say going into nursing homes and doing the the is it friendship group I can't I'm not sure the name of it now but it was chatting to the old people in the nursing homes but the main event I suppose was a Christmas party for the Mulhuddard Bernardos so we brought all the kids up to the school got Santa Claus did a toy um donation toy run so all the kids got presents and I still remember I still remember the kids' stories and their little faces now and the joy of the the Christmas party. But it was talking to the staff and hearing their stories that I thought afterwards, do you know what, that's what I that's what I want to do. So for a long time, Bernardo's was kind of the goal of where I wanted to work. I took a different path and went down in, in different uh, organisations and I ended up working in um, HSE residential homes and decided that child clients was not really in my temperament okay. so I and decided to work with um with adults instead and that's how I, I kind of came across um Sonus so yeah so that's kind of the how I got into it so that's great and can you tell us about Sonus because I know that a lot of people may not have heard of Sonus the domestic violence service so maybe from the start we could be here for a while. So Sonus is a domestic violence charity. We were set up in 1993, originally as supported housing. So it was for, for women who are already out of the relationship, but need some further support through their recovery. It could be that there's ongoing legal issues or ongoing access issues. It was, of course, then expanded as the needs expanded, as as different gaps were highlighted in different services. And so we now have a refuge, a community team and supported housing, including safe home. So our, our clients are all women. So apologies if I do fall into gendered language and, and say in, uh, her and she, but our, our clients are 100% women. We do have a new pilot program, which is interesting, actually, with the Men's Development Network, where we have a safe home that's gender neutral. So there can be male victims um, of domestic violence housed there. Yeah, because sometimes you hear some criticism about, you know, domestic violence services, that they only serve women. And you hear, you know, men also suffer from domestic violence as well. So that is a criticism you hear quite a lot. My first group that I actually worked with, with um, uh, social worker Celia Forrestal, was a group for men in Fingus who were abused by their partners. I was 17 and frightened the life out of me. Mm. Yeah, I think even from back then I saw there was a need to, but it's great to see that it's been addressed by yourselves now. And absolutely, it's so I started in Sunnis nearly 10 years ago and it was almost taboo to bring up male victims. Mm. You, it just wasn't a discussion. I suppose we were coming out of recession and there was a real fight for money for services. So there was kind of this um, women were the only victims, you know, we've moved on a lot from from then. 
you know, you've men's aid in, in there in Navin and the Men's Development Network are across the country. So the services and the, the focus and the highlight on male victims has definitely improved and rightly so. You know, there is funding going into it. Would that be because most people, I think, would think that physical abuse is what's happening rather than any other kind of abuse? I would suggest that that is probably, yeah, historically the 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 cause of it. I think it's also maybe an Irish thing, you know, men are supposed, or, or maybe it's a cultural thing in general, maybe it's, it's it's a world thing that that men are supposed to be manly. And how do you come forward with that without getting, getting laughed at? Mm-hmm. And over the years, I've had experiences with guards in a more neutral discussion where I'm not just speaking about my clients or I'm speaking about domestic violence in general. And there have been guards that have said, he's six foot, What's there's no way that his, his wife or his girlfriend, she's only mm-hmm. tiny, there's no way she's abusing him. And there is, I suppose, a recognition now that men are victims. But also, as you say, there's a move away, there's a shift away from this idea that physical abuse is the only way to be abused. But then again, as the world is moving on, you have the same-sex relationships as well, which kind of throws new confusion into... Who's the victim and who's the perpetrator? Absolutely. Yeah, everything's changing. The trends are changing. You know, if I think back to when I started, you had to be married to get an order in the courts. You know, that's obviously much different now. You don't even need to be living together to get an order in the courts now. But it was, you know, based on marriage, you know. So if you were dating somebody, you need an apply, you know. So things are progressing a little bit too slowly for our liking, but they are progressing. And as I say, in the 10 years that I've been there, I've certainly seen big improvements. And I know that there's been a lot more information and news coverage about coercive control now, hasn't there? Because I see a lot more in the newspapers and online. And that's that's become a really big issue as well, or or rather it's become highlighted Absolutely. I think, you know, for us as, as domestic violence workers, coercive control has always been there. It, it maybe didn't have the coercive control title, that very formal, formal title, but it's always been within the work that we've been doing with our, our clients, bringing it into legislation. And we're one of the only countries in the world that have done that. It's it's huge. It gives clients a, a whole other avenue for recourse for the domestic violence. So coercive control is a crime immediately. So what I mean by that is if you go into court and apply for a protection order, it's only a crime if it's breached. But coercive control, you go to your guard, you go to your local guard station and report it as a crime. It's investigated and sent to the DPP. So it's it's a real different um, avenue for clients to uh, to progress criminal proceedings against the perpetrator. So will you tell us, Sinead, what are the different types of orders that the staff might be dealing with or or have to know about to be working in domestic violence services? Yeah, so I suppose the main ones, the most common ones are your emergency orders. So that's your protection order and your interim barring order. So when you go into court, you're initially looking for a bar- for an interim barren order. Sorry, apologies. When you go into court, you're initially looking for a protection order. If there's a, a tenancy or a property, you might look for an interim barren order, but the threshold for that is very high. So usually you're seeking a protection order. 
What that means is you leave the court on the day with protection from the judge and the guards. So if there's an incident, you can ring the guards, the perpetrator will be arrested and brought to the cells and brought in front of a judge as soon as possible. That order is usually for about 12 weeks, approximately. It, it does vary with different courts. Upon that time, you go in and do a full hearing. And if the judge says you need further protection, you'll be awarded a safety order. And that can be for one, three or five years. If the interim barren order is granted, that's for seven working days. And you then go for the hearing then. The full hearing is done and you may be granted a barring order. Um, and that can be for any period of time. Like I would have clients that have been granted a barring order for six months, you know, but it does depend on ownership of the property. What does that mean now? What What is that we, complication? In, in the Irish constitution, there's a right to property. So you have to have own 51% so equal or more value in the property. There's Since the Domestic Violence Act 2018, there's a new, um, it's called the Emergency Baron Order. And that disregards the property. So it doesn't matter who owns the property, but it's only for a month. There's no long-term order after that. It literally just gives the victim time to get their ducks in a row without the perpetrator being in the property. Can I just ask the protection order is could the perpetrator still be living in the house with the victim with yeah, the protection absolutely. order and how does that work because I kind of would have been aware of you know barring orders but I, I don't know how that works could you explain that yeah so absolutely they can still live together and actually I've had cases where where it really works but so what it means is that you guys can continue living together but the person can't put you in fear or physically harm you. So if that occurs, you call 999, you tell them, you know, you've got a protection order, you're rated as a high call. So they're they're fairly quick in, again, depending on, on the areas, but fairly quick to get out to you. The person, you're both interviewed separately and the person is arrested. The person is then taken to the cells and brought to the judge as soon as possible. So it works in certain cases where, for example, the perpetrator might be afraid of the guards. Perhaps their status is based on their character. So they, they don't want to be in trouble with the guards. It also works. I had one case where a woman had four children and two of them were special needs. And so she needed his support for the children. She needed him to mind, um, mind the kids when she worked. So that worked. The protection orders and, and then the safety order, which is the longer term order, it, it does work. They can be fantastic, but not always. So the reason it's kind of started with the protection order is that if there's multiple breaches, you can then go in for the, the barren order. The barren order is a much higher threshold. But if you if you have an order and you breach it, then the judge will give you the barren order because it's been an, a legal order has been breached. So it increases um, the risk. Okay, that's really interesting. And it's certainly not black and white by any no. means. No. Um, tell me a little bit more about your organisation, though, and about the social care workers that work there. What, what do they do on a daily basis? And what did you do when you started out? 
Yeah, so I was a women's sport worker for the community team. So I'll, I'll tell you a bit about them first. Um, the community team is essentially an outreach team. So all our clients are living in the community, whether that be with the perpetrator or on their own, having left the perpetrator, or they may just be dating. Um, so they may have never left together, lived together. We will also have clients in homeless accommodation. Um, so that would have been a large, maybe five years ago, a large proportion of our clients would have been clients who have had to leave their, their house or tenancy because of domestic violence, but they were then in homeless accommodation. So on a day-to-day -day basis, you're, you're contacting your clients. Every client is offered at least one face-to-face -face meeting. And during that meeting, there would be a needs and a risk assessment and a safety plan done with all clients. So each care plan, I suppose, or support plan is, is created from that meeting and would depend upon the risk and safety level and then the different maybe areas required for the client. So what I mean by that is if they want to go in and get orders, court accompaniment would become the next step. Just to clarify, so they go with the individual into court to get yeah. those care orders. OK, Absolutely, and to support yeah. them with that. Yes, yes. So our, our all of our support workers can go into court, but usually it would be the community-based team that would go with clients. So we would meet them in Dolphin House, if that's their local one, could also be Swords or Balbriggan. We would meet them there. And while we're not solicitors, we don't give legal advice, we can guide them through that process and emotionally support them on the day because the court's Dolphin House, any of the family courts, they can be very scary places. You know, you're all in the same room. There's no separate waiting area for victims or perpetrators. Everybody's in the same space. Um, so it can be a very uninviting place. Well, like so, a lot of, sorry, like a lot of areas of social care and dealing with courts and government and whatever, mm -hmm. the terminology and the language and yeah documents and papers it can be very overwhelming yeah so with, i suppose you have a balance of understanding that yourself and being able to translate it into everyday language for people who are very nervous very scared of where they're going to end up and how life is running for them and the fear of if they are granted the order as much as they want the order if they are granted it, what is the reaction going to be? What is the repercussions yeah. of the perpetrator finding that order on the floor when they pick up the post? You know, if they are living together, you know, what is the, the so the safety planning, we would do safety planning with our clients around, you know, what the expectations will be when he receives that order. Do they need to be in refuge rather than in the home? And how we manage that um, that period of time after him receiving. But then you also have to throw in the situation that it's not always just two adults. You could have one child, a group of children and whatever. So I, I suppose the, the people who are looking for these orders are balancing what they're going to do and how it will long-term affect, not just today or tomorrow, but how it's going to affect their children growing up as the family unit, I suppose you'd say. Absolutely. And so so some of the other orders that I didn't mention, but that would be going on, they're, they're not necessarily the domestic violence orders, but the orders that we would also deal with are things like access, maintenance, 
presentation of children. So, for example, children aren't brought back after their access. So you have to go in to get the child. Um, the, the judge has to instruct the person to bring the access or bring the child back. A big one lately has been um, permission to leave the jurisdiction. So if you want even to go on holidays, sometimes you have to go and ask. Dolphin House does hold passports. So sometimes the the, the solution to that is the, the children's passports are held in Dolphin House instead of with the, the parents. Um, countries, for example, that aren't on the Hague Convention, we would ask Dolphin House to hold passports there if there's a risk of abduction to the child. It's a long time since I worked in mainstream, but I did have clients who we looked after because there was orders issued. Um, they would come and stay with us temporarily. And I found a huge, big issue with them was uh, access, as you say. Mm-hmm. But then the person who was applied for access not turning up, um, not sticking to the terms, as you say. So h- how do you approach the children? What What do you do? To work with the children so we have a for a children's support service for those who for those children who live on site we don't currently have it for the community children but for any children who are living either in the refuge the safe home or supported housing they have their own children's support workers in order to work through their own emotional recovery we have sensory spaces in each of our sites to try and support the children the access is a huge, the access is a huge concern, I suppose. The understanding, and that has again improved, but the understanding that if someone, if a parent is abusive towards the other parent, that's child abuse. You know, those children are living in a house that there's tension, there's stress, they're hearing things, they're seeing things, they're possibly intervening in things. And so while I while that understanding has improved, I do think there's a long way to go with the courts in that access is still being granted to parents who are not necessarily protective, nurturing parents. Mm. And so a lot of work goes into preparing children, preparing our clients for the build up to access and kind of the come down from access because children will act out we would liaise, well, the children's support workers would liaise a lot with the schools around perhaps children every Friday, children act out. And it's the hope is that they're not going to get sent on access. They'll get grounded, you know, they'll get in so much trouble, they won't have to go on access. Or on a Monday morning, maybe the, perp- the, 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 the perpetrator, whichever parent that is, has them over the weekend. They come in with no homework done, they come in with no uniform on. And so working with the school that that child doesn't get a bold label, you know, um, that there is issues within the school. So the more communication with the schools, the better. So our children's support workers would work very closely with the schools because you don't want children to get a bold label for acting out. They're they're just reacting to their situation. It's not, they're not bold, you know, so. I think years ago that probably did happen where mm-hmm. people, children were, they were being traumatized at home. They were going into school. They were getting that label. Yeah. Um, and, and it's almost like being doubly dramatized, yeah. isn't it? Yeah. And look, as, as I say, I think a lot of it is that the, the children know exactly what they're doing. They're trying to get a reaction. They're trying to get someone to say you're not allowed to go on access this weekend because they'd be only delighted um, to do that. 
Um, and I suppose there's, there's a lot of pressure on the protective parent as well to send children on access because if they don't go, the other parent can charge them with a breach and bring them into court and say, well, the child didn't come on whatever day. So there is a level of of pressure to encourage that child. When you, you could be sending your child to somewhere you feel they're completely unsafe. You know, so there is, it's a balance. That's very difficult. It must be difficult for the workers as well as the parents. Yeah. And tell me, like, surely the child should have some kind of say in this, some kind of choice. I mean, we're always talking about children's rights. Um, surely they should have a say in whether or not they go to to visit this parent that may may or may not be abusive. And, and in theory, they do. So in the, the, the Child and Family Act, I think that was 2015, was it? Um they, they brought in what they call the voice of the child. So you can do reports. Um, so the court can order different sections through the Child Care Act. So uh, the, the different sections, I won't go into them all, but the different sections relate to a different report. So it could be that a report's done by a social worker, a child psychologist, or that the voice of the child is actually sought. But it's age appropriate and it should be age appropriate because you couldn't ask a three year old, you know, what what they want. They don't they don't understand the consequences. They don't understand the situation. So it is it is age and it's defined by age. It's also kind of dependent on the psychologist that's doing it. It's also paid. So, you know, if you're going through legal aid and someone else can pay five grand for it, there can be a difficulty there in how many appointments you might get, for example. So it's not court appointed people. So they're they're reviewing that currently to try and make that a little bit more structured on how those reports are, are being made. The social work reports don't actually make recommendations. They just kind of talk about the situation in the family and then it's up to the judge to make a recommendation. So depending on the experience of the judge will direct their their judgment. And I think, again, you know, I've said it a couple of times, things are improving. There is a shift from, you know, everybody, every parent deserves or is entitled to access with their child. We've moved away from that somewhat. There's still a long way to go. And there are children out there. I'm not, I haven't, I've stopped doing the work since March, but there are still children that I think, I hope they're okay on access. We've moved away from, as I say, entitlement to it, but there's still, there's still a long way to go. And I say it's a long time since I worked in uh, mainstream, but a particular group I worked with, we did a lot of work with the Guardian at Lydams. Oh. Are they still in use at the moment? I found them extremely useful. Yeah, so not as much. I haven't seen as much interaction with them in the last couple of years. As far as I know, they can do the reports, mm-hmm. which I think is great because they're actually working with families and children day in, day out in comparison to maybe some of the psychologists who maybe haven't done it in a few years, you know, who may just need a bit of updating that and, and actually there was an email earlier on that came in they're doing a review around who's as I say who's best to do it and the guardian ad litems have been mentioned so it's all being being looked at so then as as you're working with the children and they're getting older how far along do you support specific work for children like I'm thinking mostly of say young men around refuges when they're heading towards their late teens 
Yeah, so we up until their 18th birthday, they can still come into to our accommodation-based services. Obviously, the community-based, it doesn't matter. We don't work directly with them, but up until 18. And that is the difficulty for, for clients because they don't want to leave maybe their 20-year-old son in the house. But unfortunately, we are restricted to 18. So yeah, there's not a huge, a huge heap that we can that we can do about that. We would work with our clients to try and see is there an aunt or an uncle or something that they can go and stay with instead. But in most circumstances, the 20-year-old man wants to stay at home, yeah. you know, in his own his own space. Um, but yeah, that can be a real block to people coming into to refuge. But sometimes it might be a, an adult child as the perpetrator. Isn't that right? Absolutely. And we're seeing that more and more. So we would have seen that a lot after recession because people lost their jobs and homes and had to move back. Now we're seeing it a lot again after the pandemic because people, again, lost their jobs, lost their homes and have had to move back in with their parents. So, yeah, we would see a lot of adult children on their parents um, violence. Sometimes it veers more into the safeguarding team within the social work department. So say if those if those parents are kind of over 70, we might refer them not always, but sometimes we would refer them to the safeguard and adult team yeah. in the HSA rather than um, because there's a dedicated team there for for that. Um, so it would just depend. That would be a, a, a case by case. This podcast is sponsored by Trust Social Care Consultancy. If you're looking for external professional supervision or mentoring for social care professionals, please get in touch. You can visit trustconsultancy.ie. Now, back to the podcast. So what would the major challenges be for the social care workers working in either the refuge team or the community-based team? I think that probably the biggest one is the perpetrator because you can't control their behaviour. So if they're very volatile or unpredictable, you can only safety plan or risk assess to a certain extent because you can't predict what they're what they're going to do, what way they're going to to react. We work on the basis that our clients our clients are experts in their own situation. So we would use their input in any safety plan that we provide because the more input they can give us, usually the safer they will be. They'll know kind of the trigger factors for for their their perpetrator. After that, I think you've got things like housing. You know, I think that's a huge, a huge issue for all services. Unfortunately, people, women will ask us, you know, I'll go into refuge, but then where do I go? Mm. And a lot of times the option is back home again or into a homeless hotel. So that can be very daunting for people. And I suppose it's maybe an unseen circumstance or an an unseen, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, Something that's come out of the home and homeless crisis is this um it's causing women to stay in unsafe situations it's causing them to stay in homes where where them and their children are not safe because the fear or the unknown of going into a, a homeless hotel for how long you know we we've had women who've, who've been in homeless hotels for three years you know so that that can be very scary for people but that would reflect as well the way guards and services were saying the, the amount of calls they were receiving during the lockdowns had skyrocketed because people had nowhere to go to yeah. and because 
the refugee situation is critical at the moment it's affecting obviously homeless services yeah. but um like what you're saying there I picked up a book the other day called Gaffs by Rory Hearn I'll just give him a little free plug there and it's really good and he talks in that book about how the homelessness crisis and decisions made by the government in the last 20 to 30 years have impacted every aspect of our society right down to not being able to get teachers in the city because there's literally nowhere for them to yeah. live and yeah. it's ob- it's clear that it's affecting um, people seeking refuge you're seeking safety as well imagine not having any other choice only to stay at home with the perpetrator yeah yeah and that's a reality for many of our clients so I suppose the community team is great in that way and that's maybe again Audrey to go back to the 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 protection orders where they can work is that if you have no other option the protection order gives you the protection of the guards, you know, so you can, it may not solve all the problems, but it's certainly a safety net that you can call the guards, the guards will put you on a priority case and they will come out and arrest them. It's a safety net, as I say, it's an option. And how responsive are the guards? There is kind of a priority level as well, depending on what's what's going on in the area. I found as well that guards, say the clients I was dealing with that were absconding, Oh, she's absconding again. Oh, mm-hmm. she's again, again. And then yeah. you drop down the priority list. And I suppose yeah. if they're getting repeat calls from same number, same addresses, yeah. some of that would seep in as well. Yeah. And certainly if you if they're getting repeat calls and maybe the person's not going in seeking orders. Yeah. Because the, 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 the guard's power is limited when there's no there's no orders. Obviously, if there's been an assault, they can arrest the person for an assault. But if it's more of an emotional, psychological, coercive control kind of situation, they need the protection order to remove the person. So if it's a little bit more he said, she said, that makes it more difficult. One of the big things we've been discussing over, well, since we started the podcast was about people supporting each other and the work that they do and approaching burnout and how you protect yourself against that. Do you find the work you do is heavy? Absolutely. Yeah, I think you you get, I suppose I did it for nearly 10 years. So I think when I left, I left in March to move into the the training and programs role, I definitely felt a difference in my anxiety and my stress levels. So I think it was unknowingly weighing on me. All of the organizations are so similar to to any social care. We've got our supervision with our line managers. We've got our peer support. We've got our EAP. So there's plenty of avenues for us to to kind of debrief and decompress, I suppose. But yeah, it is. I mean, you're, every client that you meet is at risk, is in danger. So you're hearing a lot of really terrible, disturbing, mm-hmm. quite violent stories all day long. So absolutely, it's not for the faint-hearted. It's not a job, you know, you, you need a thick skin in order to leave at five o'clock, turn off your phone and not bring it home. That can be quite difficult. I've so, always said I've huge admiration for people who find the job that they do really well. You know, it takes time to find it and stick at it. But yeah. it, it is important that we all look after ourselves. Audrey and I have spoken about this a lot. You know, and it's good. To, it's good to find something to keep yourself grounded. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. So, yeah. if somebody is in need of protection or services or wants to find out more information, where would they go? 
So the initial protocol, I suppose, for us is our 24-hour confidential free phone helpline. So that's the, the initial place that you would ring. That's 1-800-222-223. You will get through to a support worker there and they can do an assessment over the phone and refer you to whichever is the most appropriate service. So that could be the refuge, the community-based team or the safe home and supported housing team. So that's the best place to start. We also have a lot of information on our website, which is www.domesticabuse.ie. There's fact sheets about all the legal orders and course of control on that website and information about the different services and what each service provides. Very good. If somebody has an interest in this kind of service, how would they get involved or how would they get into this line of work? So as our vacancies are up on the website as they, they come in, we have an info email, so info at sonusdomesticabuse.ie, where you can find out more information about the different types of roles that we that we have. But the vacancies are advertised on our website as they come in. And going back to the start when you were saying apologising to the males, do you have a lot of male staff? in your we don't actually we've got two would you believe our ceo is male so which is great and then our finance manager and of course sorry i I better mention our maintenance our maintenance team as well because they're they're men we don't Mm. have any male support work and that's not that we're we're against it we've interviewed over the years but we just haven't found the right candidate Mm. yet I worked in a unit for sexually abused girls and there was 16 on the team and there was two male staff. Yeah. yeah. I found it very hard getting people to, male staff to go and work in yeah. an environment yeah. that's challenging to your gender. Yeah. It's not challenging as yeah, a person, absolutely. but gender, you know? Yeah. And I sometimes wonder, not that I'd be against it, but I'd wonder would women be able to, I suppose maybe some 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 women would and some women wouldn't, I suppose. Yeah. Um, would they open up to and feel comfortable with? And as I say, some would, and I think some wouldn't. Um, but yeah, we're certainly not against male mm. male staff. We I didn't mean that them. at all. <laughs> <laughs> no, but it's obviously something that you have a passion for, and it comes across the way you speak, and I, I commend you for that. Thank you. Yeah, I, I do. So this is a great organization to work for where where there's a great set of staff and some of our staff have been there 20 years. And that really says something about yeah. the organization. Um, but I, I do. I really enjoy the work. I love now I was ready to move a, away from the client work and the training side of it has something. It's something that I've been doing since I started. But now it's just a focus around Audrey, you had mentioned at the start that, you know, how well known is Sonus? I think if people if are asked, if you ask people in the streets, who would you call if you needed support around domestic violence? Everyone would say women's aid. And Sonus are actually bigger. You know, we, we usually have more clients annually and we provide more one-to-one meetings. So it's really, and that's, I suppose, part of my job now is to try and build that profile a little bit and get Sonus known as you know the largest domestic violence service provider because the work that the support workers do is just amazing. Suppose 
it's down to the nature of the work and the nature of kind of a refuge service. It kind of has to be hidden away so that, you know, the perpetrator can't find it or whatever. So maybe that has something to do with the mm. fact that it's not well known. I think historically that would have been, we would have been very, very confidential, tight-lipped around, you know, where services are, what we're doing. I think over time we've realised now that the the more we talk about these things, the more we talk about domestic violence in general, but the more we talk about our services, the more people we can actually help. If people don't know that the services ex- exist, then they can't seek help. So yeah. I think we've shifted away and social media has helped in that. I think that, you know, you can pop up a post around the different services you're providing or, you know, over the bank holiday, we put up posts around our emergency numbers and things like that. And it just gets it out there so that people know where to go. But I think people like yourself and like organization like your own son, is, it's empowering people to take charge. Yeah. You know, people are will, more willing to speak up about a lot more things not yeah. just about abuse and it's finding the support of people like yourself and your co-workers that are giving them the impetus to do it yeah. so if they're willing to speak more about like you you find in media that more people are willing to tell their stories and that's kind of like what myself and audrey started this podcast for was yeah. to give people the chance to do it and you're doing it in your yeah person-centered way to support yeah. them individually yeah, and I think like we would say a lot of the times, I think um, if you say nothing, then it'll just continue, yeah. you know, and I think a lot of the, the ad campaigns and things will say that that kind of break the silence cliche, you know, but it but it's important. It, you know, we need to, to talk about it. We need to get to the point where domestic violence isn't a taboo, that you're not you don't feel like you're opening a can of worms, that, you know, you have the resources that if someone discloses it to you, you know what to do. And I suppose it is things like this podcast and doing the different trainings and awarenesses that we're doing to try and increase the knowledge around that and make sure that all professionals know. Certainly, I say professionals because you're coming across more more people more often, but professionals in the social care area, if there's a disclosure made, you know where to go, you know what to do with that. You've got a, a response, um, a response to your client. I suppose I would say to anybody who's maybe working in a service coming up against disclosures, that 1-800 number can be used by professionals. We'd often get professionals ringing in saying, I'm not sure what to say to this woman. She doesn't want to go to another service. How do I manage this? And our staff would provide that support also, you know, that it doesn't have to be directly with with the client. Um, It can be with professionals as well. Absolutely. And we know from working in social care that you're never just dealing with one issue. Like no. you could be dealing with in family support, but there could be domestic violence. There could be a disability issue. There could be a learning issue there. So it's good. And, and it's great for our audience now of this podcast to know that you exist, to know yeah. that, that there's a helpline there, that people can reach out for information, that they can go to the website. So that's absolutely brilliant thank you very much so Sinead I'd just like to say a massive thank you to yourself for coming on and chatting with us about Sunnis and about your journey in social care Um, this conversation I feel is really valuable and really informative for people so massive thank you to you thanks Mel guys thanks for having me yeah it's lovely as I say I I love digging into the background of people and organisations that we know a bit about but not a whole lot about We 
hope you've enjoyed this week's podcast. If you want more information about Sunnis, you can visit their website. That's domesticviolence.ie. Join us next week on the Social Care Podcast as we're joined by Paul Flynn from Youth Reach in Tallap. Have a good week.